Well, hey, it's so good to see you guys. Sorry it's a little tight. I think we'll do a couple of these next year. We just didn't know what we were getting into. Um, sorry for all those people I said good morning to. <laughs> just what it is. Uh, let me ask you this question as we get going this evening. How do you introduce yourself when you meet somebody for the first time? Or does just the notion of introducing yourself to somebody for for the first time, just give you like anxiety, right? Like, how do you introduce yourself? How do you refer to yourself when you meet somebody for the first time? Do you go with your position at work? Uh, do you go with, hey, I'm married, I'm a spouse, uh, husband, wife. I go with mom, dad, your role, parenting. Uh, how do you introduce yourself? I hate introducing myself, honestly. Uh, I hate telling people what I do for a living because I can be having a great conversation with somebody and they ask me what I'm doing for a living. I tell them I'm a pastor, and all the language changes, and they ask for all the forgiveness for all the language that they said, and then just things are not nearly as fun. Right now, uh, at our home, we have a three-year-old, Jack Lewis Larison, and uh, he introduces himself, and he talks in third person all the time, and he goes, Jack is hungry. Jack is the hero. And we're like, man, we kind of are ready for him to move on to the me and I, but also it's really cute. That's a challenge. The other couple days ago, he walked into Megan's office. She works from home and said, Mommy, I have something important to tell you. Jack is a policeman. <laughs> so I really hope he never loses that. How do you introduce yourself? Do you go with your title, your position, your authority, your role in your family? How do you do it? I think it's an interesting question uh, because I want us to sort of turn towards Jesus and ask ourselves a question like, how did he introduce himself? How did he refer to himself? And it's interesting that all the way throughout the four Gospels, which are four ancient biographies that we have at the beginning of our New Testament, uh, we have all these incredible eyewitness accounts and stories about how Jesus walked in the world and sentences and quotes that he said that were given to us, uh, handed down for centuries from eyewitnesses. And it's interesting, he never once referred to himself as the Son of God, right? Isn't that weird? He never once directly referred to himself and introduced himself to people and said, I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. You know, he was creative the way that he told people that. And don't mishear me. Jesus was clear on who he was as the Messiah and as being divine. But it's fascinating to me, and I think it's worth us exploring and considering tonight as we remember his crucifixion, um, that Jesus referred to himself over 80 times with this title. He said, I am the son of man. Over 80 times he referred to himself this way, never once called himself the son of God, the chosen one, the Messiah, the savior, the king. He never came out and said that, but he said over and over again, oh, I am the son of man. I am the son of man. So I, I want us to lean into this tonight. I want us to explore it and just sort of see this really textured, layered identity that Jesus chose intentionally to refer to himself as, as the son of man. Now, Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi, which meant that he was an expert at the text uh, Jewish rabbis had to have the entire Tanakh, all of the Old Testament, completely memorized in their heads where they could spout out chapter, verse, and they could spout out anything from the whole Old Testament at a moment's notice. So I think it's pretty obvious here that Jesus was picking up on the text in the Old Testament. And there are two different books of the Bible 
that son of man is used as a title. The first is this strange, weird, not used as a devotional very often in our world book called Ezekiel. He's a prophet in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And Ezekiel, over and over and over again, over 93 times to be exact, he referred to himself, himself as the son of man. And often God would be speaking to him as he's writing down this prophecy. And it would go something like this, like in Ezekiel 8, 5. Then he said to me, God said to me, son of man, look towards the north. Ezekiel 8, 6, the very next verse, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? And then just a few chapters later, he goes again and says, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. Son of man in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel can just be translated as human one, as guy, as dude. And Jesus picks up this notion from the Old Testament scriptures in Ezekiel and says, I am the son of man. Have you ever heard anybody swear and you know, they, they use Jesus Christ and they give him a middle initial, H. Maybe, just maybe, that middle initial stands for human. Because this is what Jesus is wanting us to pick up about himself, that yes, he is divine, but man, he has all the stuff that you and I have as a human being. So often, We get caught up thinking there's a distance between us and God, us and Jesus, because he's the Superman, he's the hero, and we're hot mess express here in our lives. But I think Jesus wants us to pick up that, man, he is the son of man. He is the human one that you and I can relate to from the very beginning of the story. I know it's Easter weekend, but talk about Christmas, right? Luke 2, 7, we hear that Jesus was born as a human baby, And before I had kids, I had like all this notion of like a human birth was this beautiful, angelic moment. But no, if you've been in that room, (laughs) it's very human. It's got, you know, violence and noise and all the things that go along with it. And Jesus intentionally entered the world as a human baby. The son of man was born, you guys. And as he got going, uh, we find that the Son of Man, uh, this Jesus, he had a human mind like you and I did. Over and over again, we hear that he had to grow in wisdom and in stature and in truth. Is this a scandalous idea that at some point of Jesus' life, you knew more math than he did? That Jesus didn't come pre-programmed with the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible in his mind, but he had to study and learn and glean from the text, just like you have the opportunity to study and learn and glean from the text as well. He had to grow and learn. Not only that, but like Jesus was a human in the way that he got hungry He got thirsty. He ate and drank. Actually, the text tells us in multiple places, this is Jesus talking of himself, referring to himself. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking. In other words, I'm hanging out with you guys at tables, eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is like, I am the son of man. I'm the human one. And you're upset with me for doing human things. He got hungry and thirsty and he ate and drank, which leads me to a deep theological question. If Jesus got hungry, do you think he ever got hangry? Let's save that for another time, a whole sermon series down the road. But he was the human one, the son of man. The son of man, he had to rest from traveling. He had long days where his bones were tired, his muscles were worn out. The son of man, catch this, guys, he cried. 
He grieved. When his friend Lazarus died, <laughs> Jesus came onto the scene and we, we hear that he wept and mourned out loud. Jesus comes across Jerusalem near the end of the Gospels, and he sees what Jerusalem, the city of God, had become. A city that was supposed to be a beacon to the world of what life walking after God looked like, and it had been taken over by injustice and systems of oppression. And he cried and grieved and mourned. Jesus felt anger. Jesus got angry. Jesus walked into the temple and he saw that the outsiders were being taken advantage of. And if you don't know that about Jesus, like Jesus is never okay with the outsider being taken advantage of. And he throws what I like to refer to as a temple tantrum. <laughs> like he goes incredible Hulk in there saying that you have turned my father's house that's supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. One of the gospels tells us he makes a whip and he drives people out of the temple. He's angry. Have you ever been angry because you've been mistreated, or even worse than that, your family, your kids have been mistreated. The mama bear thing comes out. Jesus gets you. He understands you. Jesus got angry. We see on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went to pray in this garden called Gethsemane. And we see that Jesus is full of fear and anxiety. Actually, let's look at the text, what we, hear, we see here. The son of man is full of fear and anxiety. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him up in this garden where they were going to pray. And he began, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The son of man felt anxiety, maybe a spell of depression, because of the weight of his life and the weight of his mission that had been thrust upon his shoulders. This was Jesus. Sidebar, don't let anybody ever tell you that having a struggle with mental health or mental illness is a sin. Jesus, in this moment, felt it. You are not alone. And then, the reason we're here, we see at the end of Jesus' road, Later this evening, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, someone that he had walked through life with, was blindsided, betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, which some scholars would contend would be a couple hundred bucks. And Jesus was betrayed. Jesus, he, he speaks to this and again refers to himself as the son of man. And he says this after Judas shows up. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. Judas approached Jesus to kiss him because that was the sign to show who Jesus was. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man, the human one, with a kiss? And Judas, in his shame, he said, yeah. Jesus was betrayed. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever thought somebody was on your side, in your corner, and they blindside you? Jesus knows. And then, at the end of this evening, Jesus went all the way, and Jesus died a human death. I heard somebody say this last week, that Jesus died just as he lived, with his arms wide open and almost in this way of solidarity saying i'm going to be human i'm going to be the son of man the human one so much that i'm going all the way i'm going to experience 
death itself so that you know that I understand you, so that you can relate with me. I'm going to show you that I relate with you. And Jesus experienced his last breaths. Jesus experienced his body shutting down. Jesus experienced the lights going out. Jesus, the human one, the son of man, Jesus chose to refer to himself this way. Why? Why? I mean, there's so many reasons and so many different trails we can run down, but one of them I just hope that somebody hears tonight, because I know I need to hear it, is this, that the son of man, he gets you. He understands you. He understands what it's like to walk in the heaviness of this world. He understands what it's like to live in a complicated system. He understands what it's like to feel pain, to feel all the range of emotions, to be mistreated. He gets you. My friends, don't ever settle for a version of Jesus that makes him out to be the bionic superhero robot who can't ever relate to you because the son of man, he gets you. This Jesus, he understands you. This is the God who chooses to weep and grieve. And he put himself out there for you and for me. Son of man, it means from Ezekiel, it means the human one. But like I mentioned earlier, it's this layered, complex phrase. And there's another place in the Hebrew scriptures where son of man is picked up. And Jesus definitely is picking up this angle to this diamond and the light shining through it as well. Uh, It's found in the book of Daniel. And you you might remember Daniel if you grew up in church with the whole flannel graph thing, because there's some big greatest hits in there, right? There's Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, There's, uh, you know, uh, know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Or if you grew up with Veggie Tales, you know, Shadrach and Benny. Um, That's how (laughs) most of us remember it, right? And God's presence there. But the book of Daniel, it actually takes this strange shift about halfway through where it's, it moves from the narratives of telling these incredible stories of God's faithfulness during a Babylonian exile. And it moves towards this like apocalyptic literature and this like prophecy that's really hard to understand for us to grasp. But it paints this incredible picture. And in Daniel 7 is where we see this son of man phrase pop up again. Daniel 7 says this. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, another name for God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Son of man in Ezekiel, the human one, the guy. Son of man in Daniel, not so much, right? This is epic. This is a picture of a king, a warrior, a ruler with glory and authority and dominion. It's the other side of the coin of what Jesus is picking up when he talks about the son of man. You know, and this is really important because in the first century when Jesus lived, his people had been uh, living under the authority of the Roman Empire. And before that, it was the Persians. And before that, it was the Babylonians. And it's just this long trail of them suffering under the boot of an oppressor. And so people during Jesus' time, they picked up this scripture and they held on to this with hope. 
saying the Messiah is going to come, this son of man is going to come, this king is going to come, and he's going to render justice. He's going to shoot out wrath at all those who hurt God's people. He's one that's going to make everything right, who's going to wage war against God's people's enemies, and it's going to be a bloodbath, but we're going to win at the end, so we're all good with that. This was what people were hoping for during Jesus' day. This is why it was a popular passage. Actually, there's a rabbinical conversation that was going on between Jewish rabbis arguing about the Old Testament and wrestling with the text. And some of them believed that the Son of Man actually meant something a little bit more specific. See, the word for man in the Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in is the word Adam. It means or Adam. <laughs> it also means dirt, which, ladies, you can have a whole theology based off of that. Man, dirt, Adam, I don't know. But some rabbis were arguing, oh, you know who the son of man is? It's the son of Adam, which brings us all the way back to Genesis 4, because Adam had two kids, Cain and Abel. And if the son of man is going to fight back against injustice, and he's going to put his boot against the enemy, and he's going to wage war against the enemy, that means that the son of man has to be Abel, the first person who ever experienced injustice, the first person who was ever mistreated, who had violence pursued upon them. The son of man is Abel coming back. And this time, he's going to get his revenge, right? This was a common and popular picture in the first century as Jesus walked the planet. And Jesus picks up this title, Son of Man, but check this out. He flips it upside down. He subverts it. He shows us something beautiful and even better than what most people were expecting. So in Mark chapter 2, we hear that Jesus is teaching in this large home, and he's sharing these incredible truths about who God is, and people are gathered. It's so packed inside that people are on the outside looking in, and there are these four friends who have a buddy who's been paralyzed his whole life, and they're like, we've got to get our buddy in to see Jesus because this guy is the real deal. Maybe this Jesus can spread hope. Maybe this Jesus can heal our paralyzed friend so he can be a part of society again. And so they have this crazy plan that they're going to get him to see Jesus. Let's pick up in Mark chapter two right here. Since they could not get him in to see Jesus because of the large crowd, these guys like had the bad idea friends like, hey, we're, we're going up. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Can you imagine Jesus teaching and you see the mud start coming down and you start to see the pulley system bring this guy down. And when Jesus saw the friend's faith, he said to the paralyzed man who'd been dropped down right in front of him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the paralyzed man probably thought to himself, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> Legs, let's make this happen, you know what I mean? And there's some religious leaders and teachers of the law that were trying to catch Jesus, trip him up a little bit. And they're upset because Jesus, did this guy just say, this rabbi just say your sins are forgiven? And then they have a big hissy fit right here that we see in the very next verses. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Basically saying, who does this Jesus think that he is? In the next couple of verses, Jesus tells him exactly who he is but it's not what you're expecting. Jesus gets in this little argument. He says, what are you making such a big deal about? This is what you need to know. This is what I want you to know. Jesus says this, but I want you to know that the son of man has authority. Refer to himself saying, I am the son of man. I want you to know the son of man has authority. Now, keep in mind that picture that we talked about, the son of Abel, or the son of Adam, who was Abel, this guy who's going to come back and strike with justice and have a bloodbath and render God's wrath against the enemies. And so what are you thinking? Has authority to do what? Wage war? To bring justice? 
to render God's wrath upon people? What is Jesus going to say? How does Jesus complete this thought? Jesus says, but I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is like, I know what you're wanting from a Son of Man, from this King. And I'm telling you, I'm better than that. I'm exactly what you need. I'm the one who's going to bring you forgiveness. You see how Jesus subverts their expectations and shows them that this son of man, this king is different. I'm the son of man that Daniel talked about, but I'm not gonna look like you think. I'm gonna come wielding mercy and kindness and humility and service and forgiveness. And this is what I'm on about. And then Jesus, just to put the cherry on top, he, he does this. He, he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of all of Jesus out of his compassion. He still healed the man. But I think the thrust of the story is not the miracle. It's Jesus revealing that the Son of Man has come to forgive sins. What does this tell us about this Jesus? What does this like imply about who Jesus is? If Jesus is the Son of Man Daniel's talking about, and he's this king full of glory and authority and power. But he's coming to bring forgiveness and mercy. What does this tell us? Just a, f- a few thoughts. This God, this son of man disarms rebellion and my rebellion, your rebellion, not with violence, not with coercion, but with forgiveness. This son of man, this Jesus conquers hate with love. This son of man, this Jesus defeats death by death, taking the thrust of all of death and all of its cronies on himself until it's all extinguished their power on him. And he defeats death by receiving it and taking it all. This son of man, this Jesus extends his kingdom across the earth, but hear me on this, not by force, war, violence, coercion, but by kindness and humility and service. This son of man, this Jesus ascends to greatness by descent into the abyss of suffering. This son of man is king. And he's not like you thought a king would be. He's an odd kind of king, but he's exactly what I need. He's exactly what my soul longs for. He's exactly what you need as well. I know this king language, we wrestle with this all the time. Because here in the West, in America, we're like, we went against a king, right? We wanted liberty. We don't want to have tyranny. And we think that any kind of monarchy or any kind of single leader, we can't trust. And so we have this hard time with this language of a king. We think that every kind of rule of a king and a kingdom is going to be oppressive. But hear me in this. The rule and the reign and the kingdom of God that Jesus is instilling, oh, it's not oppressive, but it leads to flourishing. It leads to life both here and now and forever. Hear this, that the son of man, this king, he's initiating and he has initiated a beautiful collision between our chaos in our world and our lives and the shalom and the peace and the completement and the harmony of his way. This son of man, this Jesus, isn't driven to get you um, into heaven, to get out of this world so that you can go off to be someplace and evacuate and to go to heaven, but he's on a mission to bring the stuff of heaven, the life of heaven here and now. Hear me, that this king, he is not concerned with making sure that you don't go to hell He's even better than that. He wants to get the hell out of you here and now and for all of eternity. 
this king and his rule and reign leads to life and flourishing, exactly what you and I long for and desire. Son of man, Jesus picks up both sides of the coin and he lived them out perfectly. Son of man, the human one, the guy who can experience life that you can see and look in the eyes and understand. And also the son of man, this king who comes wielding forgiveness and mercy and kindness and service and humility. This, both sides of the coin, is who this Jesus is. And my friends, at the cross is where we see this beautiful collision. The human one, the king, Jesus. Paul, who was a first century church planner, wrote about two-thirds of our New Testaments. Um, He's writing to a group of Jesus followers in this place called Philippi. And in chapter 2, he starts into what most scholars believe is him pinning this poem or this worship hymn that would be sang at early followers of Jesus in their gatherings. And I think Jesus picks up perfectly the both sides of the coin, this union of God's humanity and divinity in Jesus at the same time in this song. Paul writes this. He says, Jesus who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is Jesus, the Son of Man, the human one who lowered himself so that you don't have to look up at him and he doesn't look down on you. But you can look him square in the eye because he's the human one. And he lowered himself for you and for me in humility. But Paul's not done with the song. He continues on the next part of the song. He says this, Therefore God exalted him, this Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If the first half of the song was about son of man, the human one, oh, the second verse is about the king, isn't it? This is this picture of that son of man and his kingdom that will never end, his dominion that will never end, his glory that outstretches across the globe and will never end, this authority that never gives up and never can be extinguished. My friends, this evening, as we remember this Jesus, this son of man going to the cross, may we join in with the centuries of Jesus' followers sang this song, read these words, and maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't just be their knees that bow, but it'd be our knees that bow before this odd kind of king. Maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't just be their tongues acknowledge, their songs express and confess, but maybe it'd be our voices and our souls tonight that acknowledge that this son of man, this Jesus, is good, and he died for us. In light of this kind of love, this divine love, how else could we respond? How else could we respond 
except by wonder and adoration and worship. Because this son of man walked the road of suffering for me and for you.